0: Daniel chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 28. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. The scriptures say this, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, stationed throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, including Daniel. To these the satraps gave account so that the king might suffer no loss. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom, but they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. The men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the presidents and satraps conspired and came to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays or makes a request to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish the interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and interdict. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room, open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Then they approached the king and said concerning the interdict, "'O king, did you not sign an interdict that anyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, within thirty days, except to you, O king?' shall be thrown into a den of lions. The king answered, The thing stands fast according to the laws, the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they responded to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the interdict you have signed, but he is saying his prayers three times a day. When the king heard the charge, he was very much distressed. He was determined to save Daniel, and until the sun went down, he made every effort to rescue him. Then the conspirators came to the king and said to him, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no interdict or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king gave the command, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel." Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No food was brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king got up and hurried to the den of lions. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they would not hurt me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king gave him a command and those who had accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives before they reached the bottom of the den of the lion's Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples and nations of every language throughout the whole world, May you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people should tremble in fear before the the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion has no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth for he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now I mentioned this last week, and it's true again this week. Uh, the politics, the, the, the sociopolitical structure of Babylon drives people mad when they study this text. And I don't want to get into it so much, but I'm going to give you maybe just a touch more than I did last week and there's there's no issue that's raised in these chapters more perilous than the question of who in the world is Darius because the extant historical sources that we have for Persia and Babylon make no mention of a king Darius at this time so that bothers people some readers of the scripture are inclined to think that he's fictitious Others associate him with a Persian general. Some think he's just a name for Cyrus himself, Cyrus who is leading all of Persia at this point. But for what it's worth, I've been persuaded by Stephen David Anderson, who wrote a doctoral dissertation in 2014, in which he argued that the biblical King Darius was known by the Greek historian Xenophon as, here it is, Cyaxerxes II. That's who I think Darius was. That's all I'm going to say. A great deal of ink's been spilled trying to decide whether Daniel's description also of this socio-political situation is accurate. Uh, what are satraps? That's not a, a Syrian, that's not a Persian word. So what are they? And is it likely that he would put the whole kingdom under three? And what authority did Darius have since Cyrus is technically the high king of sorts at this t- time in history? People, uh, you wouldn't believe the commentaries and what they talk about. But for today... As with last week, we're going to take the text as it presents itself to us. This is the right way to remember history for us who follow Jesus. History is always a matter of picking out what we need to know. And so what God has done by inspiring Moses and in the prophetic tradition of Israel is, this is in Genesis, is that he has crafted the stories in such a way that we can understand their meaning in the best possible way. It's the same here with Daniel. This is the way the Jewish people understood what was happening to them. Most of the terms being used are Jewish and Aramaic terms. These are the things they called these kings. doesn't mean it's what the historians call these kings or what the Persians called themselves. I don't know why the Jewish people called this man Darius, but they did. It's clearly not his name, but it's what the Jewish people called him. We find the same thing with Pharaoh Shishak, for instance. We don't know who Shishak is. There's no Shishak in Egypt, but that's what the Israelites called him because they were making fun of him. So we don't know why they called him Darius. We don't know why they called these leaders satraps. That's an Aramaic term. We don't know why they called Daniel a president, but we know that this is how they experienced it. And so we're gonna take the text as it presents itself. History is how you remember it, but we're gonna remember the story the way God has given it to us to remember it. And trust that the truth that comes out of that is the truth he wants us to hear. And what we've been studying over these weeks in the study of Daniel is that the Babylonian Empire, who at the time was the greatest empire ever to rule the part of the world where Israel is, is an empire defined by pride. Pride oozes from this empire. The Babylonians could not be more pleased with themselves. But today... We see a different manifestation of pride in the Babylonian Empire. And here it resides not in the king, not in the person who's at the top, but in the leaders that surround him, in the satraps, and the presidents. Pride manifests itself in today's passage with envy, covetousness. The desire to see that person who thinks just a little too high, we want to see him come down. As we reflect on these final events that are recorded for us in Daniel, we're going to consider first the resentment of the Persian leaders and how that drives them. Second, we're going to consider the repentance of Daniel and what he's doing when he's praying. And third, we're going to think about the rescue of God and what it means for Daniel and what it therefore means for us. So we're going to start with the resentment of the leaders of Babylon. This comes from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, but I'm just going to read a few verses starting in verse 3, just to remind us. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom, but they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. The men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. That's the weak point. In general, we don't like gifted or successful people who are better at what we do than we are. Now, if somebody is gifted in a way that I'm not at all, like a gymnast, I can't do a somersault, but they can do I can cheer for them, because they're not approximate to me. I'm not trying to be a gymnast, and I couldn't be one if I wanted to. So I can celebrate them. But if somebody that I work with is better at the job I'm trying to do than I am, that person I hate. If someone have, has a skill that I want to have, oh, I'm going to find the faults in everything they do. Cain and Abel faced that situation early in the story of Genesis. Brothers who both wanted to please God with an offering. So they had the same goal. They had the same agenda. And they both brought an offering that in their view would honor God. Now, there are no law at this point, so God's never told them what they should or shouldn't do. This is purely spontaneous. Just two kids trying to please their father. And so they bring their offerings, and God says, more or less, Abel, I like that. Cain, go back and try again. And Cain did not much like that. So Cain does a calculation. He figures, if Abel weren't here, there'd be nothing to compare me to. So if I could get rid of Abel, I get rid of my competition, and he's clearly better than me, so i got to wipe him out of the way. That was the original, the first conflict. The Scriptures tell us that, in fact, this little story that we're going over, these satraps and these presidents with Daniel, the story of Cain and Abel, the Scriptures tell us that that's the root of almost all sinfulness in you. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We find these teachings. This is in the New Testament. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something, you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, James writes, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's for nothing that the scripture says? God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded lament and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection humble yourselves before the lord and he will exalt you the teachings of jesus is that we do not achieve a life honoring to god by trying to compete or overcome the goodness of others Another person's skill, another person's gifting, another person's rise has nothing whatsoever to do with how the Lord looks at you. He doesn't grade on a curve and he doesn't look at everybody and compare who's better or worse. He looks at you and you alone. When God evaluates you or me, he looks at us as though we were the only one there was. God sees his children and fairly evaluates their work. And because that's true, we don't have to worry about who's achieving. We don't have to worry about who has the money or the gifts or the looks or the family or whatever else in the world we might go after because it doesn't matter. God looks at none of these things. And what matters most is what he sees when he looks at you. The most fearful words that, to, that we will ever hear at the judgment is, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. The greatest words we could ever hear are, welcome into the kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world what matters most is that god knows you not that anybody else does and that's why the meek inherit the earth that's why we can humble ourselves but the leaders in in daniel's day they were informed by another spirit as far as the babylonians were concerned if one person's on top then the rest of us can't achieve They did not like glass ceilings, and they really disdained Daniel. And Daniel was so much better at their job than they were that Darius was considering putting the whole kingdom, restructuring the whole thing, so that everyone had to answer to Daniel. And they just could not tolerate that. And so they conspired to take him down. The Babylonian spirit was not one which celebrated another's success, at least not when it came at the expense of our own. To accept that another person is better at something that we desire to do well, that's challenging for everyone. But to truly accept another's gifting and to seek to work for that person with all our might and effort to make them even better at what they're already good at than they already are at our own expense, how many have the spirit to do that? But that is the spirit of Jesus. But it is not the Babylonian spirit. That's what James is getting at. This idea that I have to stand out is friendship with the world. And it is not the example of Jesus. So our first lesson from Daniel, as we look at the relationship of the Babylonian leaders to Daniel and to their king, is this. To pursue greatness at the expense of another is Babylonian. But it is not the Spirit of God leading you when you do that. And when you feel that envy or that jealousy, when you see that somebody has something you don't have, or they've achieved something you haven't achieved but you've worked at achieving, or they seem to be more gifted, or they seem to be more blessed than you are, that feeling that you have that wants to see them taken down, now you know Satan's voice. For you are communing with him. In that space. But now let's look at Daniel. So we looked at those leaders. And they're not great examples, but they are very familiar to us. But Daniel, now let's look at him. This comes from Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. But I'm just going to read a little section starting in verse 10. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him just as he had done previously. So this is a strange practice to risk your life on. The law of Moses never says that you're supposed to pray three times a day. It never says that you're supposed to pray publicly. So why in the world does Daniel stick with this thing as though his life depended on it? Is this just about a person being devoted? Is that all it's about? It's about so much more than that it seems Daniel was repenting. He was repenting. Not just for himself, but for his nation. Now the first clue to that in the text is that he was kneeling. So it's a, he takes a posture of humiliation, of, of humility. Now that's not firm evidence exactly, but the historical context and the direction in which Daniel was praying, that gives us the clue as to what he was doing and why he couldn't stop. And the the background to this is in Second Chronicles. So if you have Bibles, look to Second Chronicles chapter six. Now I'm gonna start in verse twelve, and I'm gonna kinda of skim a little bit so you can get to the salient part. But this is the context of everybody's favorite passage these days. Second Chronicles chapter six, verse twelve. Solomon has built a temple that David wanted to build, but God refused to let David build, and he gave it to Solomon to build it. So Solomon built a temple, and this is his, uh, he's anointing it. It's the inauguratory event at the temple. This is what Solomon does on those opening days. 2 Chronicles 6, verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant in steadfast love, chesed, with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You who have kept for your servant, my father David, what you have promised him. Indeed, you promised with your mouth, and this day have fulfilled with your hand. Therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant, my father David, that which you promised him, saying, There shall never fail you a successor before me to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your children keep to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you promised to your servant David." Verse 18, but will God indeed reside with mortals on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Regard your servant's prayer and his plea, O Lord my God, heeding the cry and the prayer that your servant prays to you. May your eyes be open day and night toward this house, the place where you promise to set your name, and may you heed the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. And hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. May you hear from heaven your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. And then he's going to go through. I'm not going to read all of these, but I'm going to give you a gist of each one of them. Verse 22. If someone sins against another and is required to take an oath and comes and swears before your altar in this house, he's more or less saying, will you hear? Verse 24, when your people, Israel, having sinned against you are defeated before an enemy, but turn again to you, confess your name, pray and plead with you in this house, may you hear from heaven, will you listen to them? Verse 26, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you and then they pray toward this place, confess your name and turn from their sin because you punish them, will you hear? That's what he's saying. You can go on and read those other verses. Verse 28, if there's a famine in the land, if there's a plague, blight, mildew, locusts or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in any of the settlements of the land, whatever suffering, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea from any individual or from all your people Israel, all knowing their own suffering and their own sorrows, so that they stretch out their hands toward this house. Will you hear? That's what he's asking them. Verse 32, likewise, when foreigners who are not of your people, Israel, come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray toward this house, will you hear them too? That's what he says in those verses. Verse 34, if your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them and they pray to you toward the city that you've chosen and the house that I've built for your name, will you hear them then? That's what he's asking. Verse 36, if they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin. And you're angry with them and give, to them, give them to an enemy. Where's Daniel? They've sinned against God and God has given them to an enemy. And you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. This is where Daniel is. Then if they come to their senses in the land to which they have been taken captive and repent and plead with you in the the land of their captivity saying we have sinned and have done wrong, we've acted wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity to which they were taken captive and pray towards their land which you gave to their ancestors. Remember Daniel's window? Which way did it face? Towards Jerusalem. Then hear from heaven. Your dwelling place, verse 39. Place their prayer and their pleas. Maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to prayer from this place. And then he asks God to come and dwell in the temple. That's how it ends. But he doesn't know what God's answer is gonna be. That's just the request of Solomon. A few verses later in chapter seven, verse 12, God appears to him and gives him his answer. And this is what God says. And let's remember the request The request was that God would hear prayers prayed towards the temple in Jerusalem, right? That was the request. Here's God's response, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name... Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So he's saying, yes, I will do as you've asked, Solomon. Verse 15, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, Solomon. If you walk before me as your father David walked, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I made covenant with your father David, saying, you shall never lack a successor to rule over Israel. It's a long passage, but you need the context. Now the prophet Jeremiah had told the people of Israel that they were being sent into exile in Babylon because of their sins. And the length of that time would be 70 years. Why 70? Seventy years were the number of Sabbath years that they had refused to observe while they lived in the land of Canaan. So every seventh year, they were to let the land lie fallow. They were not to work their animals. They were not to plant crops. They were to eat only what the Lord had given, a complete Sabbath rest for all beasts of burden, for all animals used for food and sustenance, for all crops. And so they didn't do it. Seventy cycles they didn't do it. 490 years they didn't do it and so God sent them into exile and he says through Jeremiah you'll be 70 years in exile so the land gets the Sabbath you stole from it so 70 years do anybody know how long Daniel's time in Babylon was before he died it was 70 years so what Daniel is doing is he's taking very seriously the promise God made That if they were sent away, that if they promised, if they repented, if they turned back to Jerusalem, he would hear them. And Daniel was not going to take a day off from repenting. This was not about the law for Daniel. It was about desperation. It was about calling God to his promises made to Solomon. You might say, well, couldn't Daniel have found some inner room and figured out which way was east? Or, well, he's, yeah, which way was west? And just pray in that direction. Apparently, that's not how Daniel understood Solomon's prayer. This was his chesed, his loyalty to the people of Israel. It was his emet, his faithfulness to God. He would not allow the fear of death to dissuade him from his responsibility to his people. Daniel reveals here that he knew he was put in the court of this king for his people. And he was going to pray for them every day. And God apparently honors that. And that's our final point, is the rescue of God. Daniel chapter 6, verses 19 to 28. I'm just going to read verse 20 and a couple of verses to remind us. When he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out anxiously to Daniel. This is King Darius. O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you faithfully serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel then said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no wrong. Now, you and I who have lived in this world for any period of time, we all know that Daniel's story is not repeated very often. God doesn't always shut the mouths of the lions. He doesn't always spare us from the things we fear. And sometimes our obedience, and we see this around the world through the history of the martyrs of the church, sometimes following Jesus leads right into the lion's mouths. There were plenty of Christians in the early days who were thrown to lions in the gladiatorial rings, and they did not survive. So God does not always close the lion's mouths. We know this. So the question is, why did he, in Daniel's case... The book of Daniel, from beginning to end, emphasizes those times in which God does intervene to rescue his people. But the fact that it happens so rarely and the fact that it happens to Daniel tells us that when God intervenes in these ways, it has nothing to do with the people who are saved. It has to do with God and the sermon he is preaching. And that is the mystery of why some are blessed and others are not. Some achieve and others don't. We think it's a personal merit. Daniel is given these gifts and he knows it for the sake of others. That's why he won't stop praying. Because he's there not to be wealthy, not to be loved, not to be celebrated, not to be praised, but to serve the people of God. And so every day, even if it means his life, he will pray to repent so that God might call the people back from exile. Don't get down on yourself if you're not the chosen one. In the Bible, we always tend to read as though we're the heroes. When we teach our children these Bible stories, we don't ever teach them to be Esau, Ishmael, Job's kids. No, we're always the hero. But life is pretty disappointing when you live it that way because you and I all know we're not the main storyline. When God gifts somebody, even when he heals somebody, even when he rescues somebody like he does Daniel, he doesn't do that for that person. It's not because he has chosen that person and he thinks that person is more important than the next person. That's not what this is about. That's what Romans is trying to tell us in chapter 9 when it says that there was nothing Jacob did to earn his election. God just chose him. When God chooses someone, it's not about them. When God spares someone, it's not about them. When God heals someone, it's not about them. It's about the larger story of what is happening in the world. Sometimes God is moved by compassion. Other times he does things because he needs to do them. And he tries to tell this to the Egyptians who really thought they were big deals. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. They kept resisting God. This is what he says. The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him... Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I will send all my plagues upon you yourself, upon your officials and upon your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand. Hear this. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Verse 16, But this is why I've let you live, to show you my power and to make my name resound through all the earth. When Jesus does miracles in the scriptures and they're highlighted, it's because they are signs. It's not because he likes the person he healed better than the guy he didn't heal. It's because he is telling us something. And some of us are chosen to be illustrations in the sermon he's preaching. And some are not chosen for that. And the key to happiness in life is accepting the role of of the understudy of accepting the role of the marginal character and this is what jesus is saying when he says the kingdom is good news for the meek it's good news for those who mourn it's good news to those who have been looked over because up until now god has selected people to further the story of his gospel in the world and those people look Especially blessed and everybody else feels like God doesn't care much about them. But when the kingdom comes, it's those who have not been chosen who will be lifted up. When God does a miracle publicly, it's almost always a sign. Now sometimes Jesus does heal people out of compassion, but those stories are never really told to us. They're just lumped together and he healed many diseases. But when one is singled out, when miracles are singled out by the prophets who wrote the First Testament and by the eyewitnesses who preserve the life and ministry of Jesus for us, they're nearly always about God's glory. In other words, God intervenes in these ways to make room for repentance in those who would not otherwise see their transgressions. God heals some so we know there is a God who heals. And God saved Daniel so that the nation of Babylon would be told again that their arrogance is destroying the world. And that God is intervening to raise up the humble. Their kings and their leaders were trying to take down someone who was successful for their own self-promotion. And God judges that by saving the one who was condemned for repenting for his sins. And lifting him up. This is a sign to the Babylonians. He's using Daniel as a sermon illustration so they might learn who the real God is and what the real God desires. Daniel wasn't saved for Daniel. God could have raised up anybody to be a Daniel if he wished it. But Daniel recognizes this, and he's willing to humble himself. There's a saying in our world, and it's one that comes from Babylon and has never been lost. And it's that fortune favors the bold. You've heard it? Fortune favors the bold. Risk nothing, gain nothing. Right? Nothing ventured, nothing gained those sorts of things. What it's teaching us, and this is the spirit of the enemy, is teaching us to put ourselves forward, to promote ourselves with the hope that somebody will see our quality, to perform for for people, and to hope that somebody will see how good we are at that performance and help us to achieve what our fullest potential really is. But that's the spirit of the evil one. Jesus' teaching is very, very different. And it's true if you follow Jesus' teaching, you probably won't achieve in the world the way that others will. But it is better to suffer for doing it Jesus' way than to achieve at the world's value system. This is Luke chapter 14. Jesus tries to explain this in a story. Luke chapter 14, verse 7. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you'd have to, you'd start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The other way Jesus says this is, the first will be last and the last shall be first. How do we repent? Repentance is not complicated, church, but it's very difficult. We must live our lives like Jesus. Jesus was the God of all creation. He had literally created and was sustaining the life of those who were accusing him of being a false prophet. And in the midst of that, he did not promote himself. He did not defend himself. He allowed them to condemn him, the creator of all things, as a criminal. And he allowed himself to be tortured and crucified because he was condemned lawfully even though he was innocent. This example of Jesus has resonated through all time. Could you imagine Nebuchadnezzar doing this? Could you imagine Belshazzar doing this? Could you imagine any of these satraps doing this? But you know who you could imagine doing this? You could imagine Daniel doing this. Now, you wouldn't have done it as well as Jesus. But Daniel refused to save himself at the cost of his people. And that's ultimately the spirit that fulfills itself in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of one who lays down his life for those who want nothing but his harm. Loving our enemies can only be done from a place of humility. We have to get over ourselves. The only way to come to the scriptures and understand them is on your knees. We have to come emptying ourselves looking for nothing but God's will, looking for no rescue but what God would provide, looking only to be transformed and never to be confirmed, then you'll see. And your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God. Serpent said you could do it from pridefulness, stealing knowledge, things like that. But he's wrong. It has to be given and it's only given to the humble.